2: Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on this week's show... Do we need to be worried about the recent Ebola outbreak?
3: This is a really good test of whether the world can respond well to Ebola.
2: And how a study of biomass is putting humans' place in the world into perspective.
4: Humans have just as much biomass as one species of krill, or all termites, which is a lot less than I think many people would imagine.
2: But first, is it really me speaking? How can you be sure? Maybe my voice has been synthesized through artificial intelligence, and what I'm saying now, I've not actually truly said. You don't really know. But imagine being able to change the rhetoric of, say, Donald Trump. Many people wish that all the time. Well, that is what is happening on the internet. Take, for example, this clip, which was created by SPA, a left-wing Belgian political party. Dear people of Belgium, this is a huge deal.
1: We all know that climate change is fake, just like this video.
2: Joining me right now, listeners in the studio, is Tim Cross and Hal Hotson, two science correspondents who've been writing about these issues of artificial intelligence and voice cloning and face swapping and other ways in which we can manipulate the news by using these new techniques. In the same way that Photoshop allowed us to change images, we have new techniques that allow us to change what looks to be the real video, and in particular, in this case, the voice of someone. Before we get into what it means, I'm interested in how it works and where it comes from. Tim, you know about the history of these techniques. Give us a romp through the field of how we got to where we are.
0: So these things are called deep fakes, this genre of video. And the deep is a bit of a clue. It's about deep learning, which is a machine learning technique that we've all been reading lots about. It powers all the recent progress in things like face recognition and playing complicated board games and so on. And these things are sort of pattern recognition engines. So one of the many, many uses is, it turns out you can show a computer a bunch of images of a face. It learns what the face looks like. And then you can present it with a piece of film and say, swap this face for the one you've just learned about. And you can you know, move people's faces into films. You can have a lot of fun or do a lot of mischief with this in politics. And I guess this is an early example of exactly that.
2: Okay. And is there a way to detect it when it happens?
1: So this particular Trump video is pretty bad. It's low resolution. Even Trump's voice sounds kind of stupid. And really anyone who's watching it isn't going to think it's real. And the SPA party, they admit that it's fake. But it is sort of technically detecting these things is sort of in now and in future is a real challenge. It's not easy. People talk about doing things like using cryptography to sign images so that you would be able to say exactly where this comes from. People talk about using the same software that generates the images to actually watch for fake images. The idea being that if you can make a fake thing, you probably know what a fake thing looks like. But it's basically turning into an arms race. And at the moment, I, I don't know if Tim would agree, it's not clear where we'll end up, whether we'll be able to reliably spot fakes or just be completely awash.
2: Sounds pretty dangerous.
0: Potentially. I mean, like Hal said, so the SBA actually have Trump at the end admit this is a fake video, but you can do much better. So there's a, in fact an older video doing the rounds of Barack Obama where they have what appears to be his face repeating words that are spoken by an actor. And it, they put sort of more care and effort into it. And it was done by an academic research group. So they said, you know, this is not real in sort of big flashing letters. But at a casual glance, you'd be pretty hard pushed to to, to tell that it wasn't.
2: Let's play that now.
0: We're entering an era in which our
2: enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things. Moving forward, we need to be more vigilant with what we trust from the Internet. That's a time when we need to rely on trusted news sources. So that was uh, absolute genius. You know, technology giveth, technology taketh away. Now, there was a shift in public perception about images when the mass media and Photoshop merged together, and people understood that they had to be suspicious that... What they thought was an image and a photograph of something wasn't necessarily true. And we've created not only a public recognition of that and skepticism, but institutional norms around how we publish and what we publish in the software to identify Photoshopped inauthentic works. Do we need that same public recognition and almost institutional norms and practices around now, audio content and video content, because it's it's sort of at its Photoshop moment.
0: You're right. You know, people are more skeptical now of things like images. And I guess as this stuff becomes more common, people will become more savvy. But it'll take a while. And I think what's interesting when you look at some of the things that, say, Russia's alleged to have done, or you look at like sort of propaganda techniques, it almost kind of doesn't matter whether you can tell these things from the truth or not. Part of what you want to do is just sowing doubt and making people wonder and you're just debasing the whole idea of sort of truth in general. For some people, that, that's a valuable thing.
1: And I think the, the other point is that yes, institutions can build norms and adapt to this kind of stuff, but most of the internet is a-institutional. It doesn't really have institutions. And until places like Twitter and Facebook, the networks where everybody's on, start to think of themselves in this way and start to adopt these norms, then we're going to have a real problem. Like one of the things we were talking about is that in a way, this completely low to zero cost media production, doesn't it kind of bring us back to, you could call it like the parochial internet or something, where 98% of people are just awash with garbage and there are no gatekeepers. And then 2% of people, they see out a gatekeeper and the gatekeeper still does their normal function and maybe even their value goes up. But for most people, it's going to be very hard to tell truth from lies and probably they won't even care just like they never did.
2: That's very depressing, Hal. Tim, please bring in some optimism.
0: I'm going to double down actually and say if you want to get if you want to get really depressing. <laughs> so the mass media gets a lot of criticism, but one thing maybe it did do was give people and societies a sort of general ground truth on which everyone could kind of agree. If you are a villager in a medieval village or you're a merchant or you're even the king, you know, it's really hard to get reliable information from people. It's really difficult to sort fact from rumor. And the most depressing take on this is that this idea of a sort of reality we all agree on or a world in which truth is reasonably easily available and you're protected from falsehoods. Maybe that was just a historical blip.
1: I think we should be a little harder on the gatekeepers, though, because saying the gatekeepers just provided truth de facto is probably, yeah, no, that probably rubbish. Probably it was warped in all kinds of ways. That, but even if you have a crap version of shared reality, at least it's a shared reality, whereas what we're moving into is no version of shared reality.
0: Well, and I think this actually, to now bring it back to be a little bit more optimistic, this maybe is how you get there. Because you're right, the Media didn't always do the job that they like to think they did. But the sky didn't fall in. I don't think this is going to cause the sky to fall in. I don't think it's it's hopeless. But I think it is going to maybe just debase the idea of the truth a little bit more. And that's probably something that's not hugely welcome. We'll survive, but it won't be great.
2: Well, it seems like that we are in uncharted waters, but we've been here before. Tim, Hal, thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Ken. Cheers, Ken.
2: Next Congo's health ministry announced six new cases of the Ebola virus this week. Dozens of healthcare workers in the northwestern city of Mdaka have received vaccinations. Some of them may be deployed to the rural epicenter of the epidemic, but how much should we be worried in the West? I'm joined in the studio by Natasha Loder, the economist's healthcare correspondent, to see if we should be concerned and what is being done. Hello, Natasha.
3: Hi. Hi. Nice to be here.
2: Natasha, many people are worried about Ebola and worried that they don't know how worried they should be.
3: How worried should they be? They should be appropriately worried. What's happening in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, is that there's a, there is an outbreak of Ebola and it's not yet contained. It's been sort of burning away for a, a couple of months. And generally what happens in Ebola outbreaks, we've had many over the years, As they sort of crop up in rural locations, a team is sent out and it's sort of contained within a period of time. What's happened here is this... But it's been sort of burning along for a couple of months and it's now in a number of locations and in particular in a city called Mbandaka, which is home to about a million people. And there have been a number of infections that have cropped up in that city in the last week. And people are concerned, rightly so, that actually that it could be sort of taking hold in this city and it could be sort of getting out of control. Now, that's why people are worried, but you need to sort of set that against the fact that actually the world is responding pretty well to this outbreak at the moment.
2: Is there anything that we should be doing in the West that we're not doing?
3: I don't think so, no. I mean, there's been lots of pledges of money from countries like Canada, Germany, the EU, America and the UK. WHO needs $26 million over the next three months. It hasn't quite been pledged that. So maybe a little bit more money would be helpful. And also, these pledges are just pledges. They The money does need to come. So that's certainly something that needs to happen. I think the international response has been really appropriate. Um, the WHO didn't declare it an international public health emergency. And rightly so, it hasn't really reached that level of seriousness. And hopefully it won't. I mean, this is a really a really good test of whether the world can respond well to Ebola. And all the lessons we've learned in the 2014 outbreak have very much been tested in this outbreak.
2: One of the issues in the previous outbreak that was controversial was that although we could track the disease through the proxy of mobile phone usage and just simply tracking where people are to know what routes they were taking, what network hubs they were using as they were going from one place to another to get a sense of where the outbreak might appear next for our models. That mobile phone data wasn't shared by the operators citing privacy rules. But of course, during the case of an outbreak and a plague, that seems specious to cite privacy rules when people are dropping dead. Do you have any sense that there is a better sense of how data can be brought to bear to staunch the outbreak of Ebola?
3: It's one of the lessons that we learn in every outbreak is that there's a sort of great priority in sharing data. And that happens to a greater or lesser degree depending on which organizations and people you're talking about. I mean, even in science, you know, you get situations where scientists might do some work perhaps on a particular strain of vaccine or on the genetics. And other scientists will complain that they're not getting access to this data. And that's just something that happens. It's human nature in a way. I do think in the 2014 outbreak, certainly data may have been an element of the response. But we can't get away from the fact that, you know, at the moment the grunt work, the real basic work of containing this outbreak is to do with very basic things. It's to do with communicating well with the population about how to keep themselves safe. It's to do with contact tracing, getting people into the field who can trace the people who've had contact with Ebola victims or patients rather. And then it will be about deploying vaccine to the right people. And these are all very kind of basic health responses, all the kind of whizzy data and tech, really is not going to be crucial in an outbreak of this size at this stage, I don't think.
2: Natasha, thank you very much. Thank you. What are your thoughts on the Ebola outbreak or on the dangers of fake video? Tell us in an email or send them to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And regular listeners know that we like to give away one free copy of a book on Babbage each week. And this week, I have a very special one. It's called Prediction Machines, The Simple Economics of Artificial Intelligence, written by R.J. Argowal, Joshua Gans, and Avi Goldfarb, and published by the Harvard Business School Press. In order to get the book, and I will be sending out just one book to one lucky listener— I would like to know the answer to this question. If we didn't call AI, artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence, what would we want to call it? I'm looking for words, of course, that don't anthropomorphize the technology. Now, if you say parameter optimization, mm, sounds a little bit boring. So come up with a term that people would like to use, but isn't AI. Finally, billions of years ago, a star began to die. And in the process, it created something new, around 65,000 billion tons of carbon that would later be incorporated into the nascent planet known as Earth. Today, however, that carbon is still here, but a fair chunk of it makes up the bodies of living beings. And a new study published this week by Yinan Baran and others from the Weizmann Institute of Science provides a comprehensive estimate of how the Earth's carbon stock is distributed among its inhabitants. Joining me in the studio to discuss the study and what we can learn from it is Chiara Eisner, who wrote about it for this week's issue. Hello, Chiara. Hi. So last week, you told us about how carbon was found in Greenland and how it was used to explore our past. Tell us about this study. What did they find?
4: So this study is a comprehensive look at the amount of carbon in the biosphere, specifically in the various taxonomic groups that we have here. So that's animals, bacteria, archaea. And they looked at various things, such as the impact of humanity on those numbers and just the numbers in general. So how much carbon is in the plants, how much carbon is in the animals themselves, how much carbon is in the bacteria.
2: Explain to us what biomass is.
4: So biomass is a way for scientists to measure and compare carbon that is sequestered in various places. And specifically, when they're talking about biomass, they're talking about sequestration in animals and in living things.
2: So what are the practical applications of the study?
4: The practical applications are quite large in the sense that they provide scientists from different fields, scientists who are looking into fungi, into bacteria, into plants, a uh, perspective on the the sizes and distributions of these various groups. What makes this study quite exceptional is that they did a giant, giant, giant survey of all of this research that had been done independently for decades. And they found a way to kind of compile the information so that they could create these large percentages and this overall look at what is in the biosphere.
2: That's fascinating. And so where do they want to take this research next?
4: So some of the weaknesses in the research is that the technology isn't really good enough to look very accurately at the biomass in the deep subsurface of the earth. So we know that there are microorganisms in the deep subsurface. We don't know how many there are. And that's something that the study has a big error value in it because we don't know that to a high degree of accuracy at all. So future research should focus on the amount of biomass in the deep subsurface and should also look at more closely the amount in, for example, the lower layers of the ocean.
2: That's really interesting. So what is the impact of humans on the biosphere?
4: So, what we see due to this study is that for such a relatively small biomass, again, humans have just as much biomass as one species of krill or all termites, which is A lot less than I think many people would would imagine. But for such a relatively small presence, humans have had an incredible impact on the prevalence of other species and other kingdoms. And we see that in the fact that the mass of humans are an order of magnitude higher than all wild animals combined. Um, And this changed drastically. The biomass of humans and livestock far exceed that of any wild animal. Poultry, dominated by chickens it's greater in biomass than all wild bird species combined. And this is a clear, direct impact of the human species.
2: Kiara, thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, please consider taking out a subscription. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for 12 pounds or $12. I'm Kenneth Couquier. In London, this is... Wait, this could be fake news. This could all be contrived. Maybe I didn't say any of this myself, but it's all been pre-programmed by an algorithm or bot. This is the, 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 the economist.
1: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you own or operate a business